Whether you are a student, just beginning your career, or nearing retirement, at some point, you will likely rely on a pension. A pension is a fund into which money is added into while you work, often by your employer. And once you retire, payments are drawn from this fund to help support you later in life. So what does this have to do with sustainability? Well, it turns out that most pension funds are invested in financial markets to try and increase the amount of money in the fund. And some of these investments may not align with your values. For example, many pensions are invested in chemical companies, weapons manufacturers, or fossil fuel companies. In this episode, we're going to give you a crash course on sustainable finance and discuss this growing and ever-important industry with some of our friends working in the sector. You are listening to the podcast Advancing Sustainable Solutions, broadcasting from the International Institute for Industrial and Environmental Economics at Lund University. This episode will be hosted by Catherine Shebb and Stephen Curtis. Hey there, and welcome back to the IIEE podcast, Advancing Sustainable Solutions. Today, I am really excited to talk about sustainable finance, and you don't hear that so often coming out of most people's mouths, right? Uh, when one hears about finance or economics, I know my own gut reaction is to look in another direction to find another conversation to join, because I often feel like I have very little to contribute on those topics. Mostly it's because I just really don't feel comfortable talking about finance or economics, and I don't know so much about investments, the stock market, or the financial sector. Even dealing with my own pension seems like a daunting task. I know, Stephen. I, I completely agree with that. I mean, even myself, actually, my goals for 2021 are to become more financially aware and specifically to better understand my role in sustainable finance. So I completely understand where you're coming from. But really, you know, this is so important right now because we really have such a small window to achieve the 1.5 degree Celsius target put forward by the Paris Agreement. And with our societies needing to transform over a period of years, we really will rely on the finance sector to guide many of the investments required to achieve this target. Yeah, so I think maybe we all understand the importance of sustainable finance, but we don't really know what it means. So if you are like me and are maybe a little afraid of finance, we'll very gently introduce you to terms like sustainable finance, ESG, non-financial disclosures, and the like. No doubt we've put a lot of effort into making this episode informative and meaningful. And we have arranged some amazing people working in the field to join us to help make finance a little less scary. Exactly. So not to bore you with our own boring terminologies and understanding, we'll have Emilia Holdaway, Policy Program Director at the Institutional Investors Group on Climate Change, based in the UK, join us, uh, where she'll provide insights on sustainable finance. And we'll also be joined by Mike Tulch, who's actually an alumni of the IIEE, who is currently a senior analyst in the Shareholder Engagement and Policy Team at the Shareholder Association for Research and Education, SHARE, based in Toronto. He'll also share some insights on sustainable finance, but he'll also talk a bit more about choosing this topic as a career path. And while we highlight research and findings about sustainable finance, one should always be careful when making personal financial decisions. This episode is intended to be primarily informational. And so when making decisions about your personal finances, we suggest, of course, to conduct your own research and consult with professionals as necessary. As you know, we need everyone to contribute to a more sustainable society. And on the podcast, we often discuss the roles of business, government, and individuals. This episode is no different. We will explore public and private finance, as well as tips to learn more about how your pension and what evil companies your pension fund may be investing in. Stay tuned.
Solving environmental and social problems are no longer really the burden of NGOs, governments, or individuals alone. The finance sector is stepping up too. And so central and private banks, asset managers, and other than the sector have decided to integrate sustainability into their financial analysis and investment decision-making to also advance sustainable solutions. And this is really a big deal because these financial institutions work across all sectors and geographies in our economy. From lending, investing, and insuring, the finance sector has a key role to play in accelerating and enabling the transition towards sustainable and low-carbon economies. And if you think about it, really, the finance sector plays a crucial role in economic growth and in directing that growth. It controls the flow of money and can direct capital to companies that understand and manage their sustainability issues well, or are developing business models to solve the global challenges that society faces. And this is what we call sustainable finance. Yeah, and it's often believed that sustainable finance is just for the private sector, but that's really not the whole story. Sustainable finance actors include both public and private financial institutions. Likely, you may have heard of central banks like the Federal Reserve Board or the Fed in the United States or the European Central Bank. These are examples of public financial institutions that play a role in guiding investment and finance in society. Of course, public financial institutions also include development banks and sovereign wealth funds. On the other side of the coin, private financial institutions include private banks, hedge funds, and other asset managers. And a pension fund is actually a good example of both public and private finance. Employer pensions are those of private companies, whereas public pensions are those individuals working in government. And so when these financial institutions, either public or private, are looking to engage in sustainable finance, they usually focus on three central factors, environmental, E, social, S, and governance, G. This is what we call ESG. And so usually environmental criteria include such things as a company's use of renewable energy sources, its waste management program, or how it handles potential problems of air or water pollution, for example. S for social criteria covers an extremely wide range of potential issues. One of the key relationships is the company's relationship with its employees. Is employee pay fair? Does the company take a public or political stance on human rights issues? What benefits or perks are employees provided with? And finally, G for governance is how a company is managed by those in the top floor executive office. How well do executive management and the board of directors attend to the interests of the company's various stakeholders? Does the company have women and ethnic minorities in senior leadership positions? Is executive pay appropriate and linked to the long-term success of the business? So these are just a few examples of what investors look for when they're talking about E, S, and G. Maybe also worth highlighting, but ESG goes way beyond climate or environmental issues. Financial institutions, they focus on ESG when measuring the sustainability and societal impact of an investment in a company or business. And ESG reflects a clear shift in how financial institutions make decisions about investments, moving beyond only economic factors. For example, in the past, when a company was seeking investment, they provided financial disclosure reports, only financial disclosure documents, to help investors make decisions about investing. These financial disclosures state how well the company was doing financially. Exactly. But now things have started to change. Companies are highly encouraged to also provide what we call non-financial disclosures, which is usually a report of the company's environmental, social, and governance-related factors, ESG. And this is why these reports could have various names, such as ESG report or sustainability report. And the great thing about these reports is that they are publicly available, which means anybody who's interested in learning more about a company can find out how they are doing on their ESG factors. Yeah, but if you do go and look at a company's ESG or sustainability report, one of the things that you may notice is that there is a wide variety in how people end up reporting about these ESG criteria. To help standardize this reporting process, various standards on sustainability have been developed. However, it should be said that most of these are voluntary and only few countries have mandatory reporting of ESG criteria. 
Thus far, the EU has brought forward the most ambitious sustainability reporting guidelines under what's called the EU Sustainable Finance Plan. And it's this plan that includes the EU taxonomy. This is a really important framework for understanding sustainable finance within the EU, and we'll discuss this more later in the episode with our guest, Emilia Holdaway, who's the Policy Program Director at the Institutional Investors Group on Climate Change. What's interesting, though, Stephen, is that despite the voluntary nature of these non-financial reporting documents, companies are really taking it seriously. The Governance and Accountability Institute found that in 2011, just about 20% of the S&P 500 companies were publishing a sustainability report. But since then, the volume has really increased each year. And just now in the 2020 research, where they were examining the 2019 reporting activities, they determined that 90% of the companies in the S&P 500 were publishing a sustainability report. And that's a massive increase. So what's behind this uptake in sustainable activity and reporting? I think this is a really important question. But before we dive a little bit deeper into that topic and the rest of the episode, I think it's important to highlight that sometimes terminology used in sustainable finance can be a bit confusing, as there are very few standard definitions across the different reporting types and different countries and organizations that use the same terms to mean different things. So for example, you might have also heard the terms responsible investment, green finance, and climate finance. These terms can often be used interchangeably with sustainable finance. However, depending on the context, they might have different meanings. So it is important to ask and clarify the definition of any organization using these terms. Absolutely. Thank you, Stephen. I think that's a great idea. So let's pause for a second here and try to break down these key definitions. So let's start with sustainable finance and responsible investment. These two tend to mean the same thing because they embrace the full range of ESG issues. So when we say sustainable investment, sustainable finance, responsible investment, we're usually talking about the same thing covering all ESG issues. However, approaches that only focus on the E of ESG, so only focus on environmental issues, are more likely to be termed green finance. And so green finance is one of a number of terms used to label the activities between the environment and finance. Now, within green finance, we have something a bit more specific, something that we call climate finance. And climate finance refers to financing that supports mitigation and adaptation actions that will address climate change. So as an example, providing funds towards large scale investments to reduce emissions is considered climate finance. Now, it's important to note that the term climate finance is used mostly within the UNFCCC negotiation lingos, including the Paris Agreement. So for this episode, we'll be focusing mostly on sustainable investment slash sustainable finance when we're looking at the entirety of the issues, all three E, S, and G. So despite all the terminology, what we really want to convey here is that there is a clear and pressing need to transform the financial sector towards sustainability and a growing interest in doing so. Let's explore more about what is driving sustainable finance in society today. There are many drivers that are pushing sustainable finance forward, but potentially the initial push was when it became widely accepted that climate change poses a systemic risk to the finance sector. The increase in frequency and severity of floods, droughts, fires, etc. can really lead to destabilizing losses for insurance companies, banks, and other financial institutions with exposure to different affected industries and assets. And like everything, risk also comes with opportunity. Investors are now waking up to these risks and have decided to jump on the opportunity to shift their behavior to become more financially resilient to the impacts of climate change. Yeah, so here we see that the sector is recognizing that there is opportunity in diversifying their investments towards more sustainable investment options. And as the financial sector has accepted that they need to integrate these climate risks into their investment decisions, the community largely within the financial sector has demanded for other risks to be integrated too, 
such as other environmental risks beyond just climate change, as well as social and governance risks as well. So today, investors want to ensure that they are investing sustainably and contributing positively to the planet, the economy, and society at large. Exactly, Stephen. And what's making the shift in investment appealing was the realization that sustainable funds provide returns comparable to traditional funds, in addition to lower risk. There's always been this association, you know, that yes, if you invest in the environment, then your financial returns are going to suffer. But actually, research has shown the opposite. For example, a Morgan Stanley report, which evaluated more than 10,000 funds and managed account, shows that, and here I'm quoting, investing in sustainability has usually met and often exceeded the performance of comparable traditional funds. And just as another example, in 2015, a meta-analysis was done by academic research at the University of Oxford, which found that 88% of reviewed sources find that companies with robust sustainability practices demonstrate better operational performance, which ultimately translate into cash flows. Yeah, so this means really that we are seeing positive correlation between investing sustainably and financial returns. Responsibility and profitability can go hand in hand. And it's great when you can maintain strong financial performance while remaining aligned with your values. This is extremely attractive to many types of investors, and especially millennials and the forthcoming Gen Z, uh, as well as uh, investors like Catherine and I that are thinking about how to manage our funds more sustainably. And one final driver, which I think is really important to mention here, is the role of regulation. And it's occurring quite rapidly. And, and regulation really is so important here because it provides a legal obligation for the finance sector to integrate sustainability into their investment decision making, but also to report against it. And just a few examples of regulations. In France, they have just released Article 173, which requires investors to be transparent on the climate impacts of their investments. Another example is in the EU, various financial players will have to report against the EU taxonomy, which we'll discuss a bit later with our podcast guest. And finally, just as another example, New Zealand has implemented mandatory climate risk reporting. There's also the concept of fiduciary duty, where investors are legally required to take into account the best interests of their beneficiaries. And now the fiduciary duty of investors likely includes ESG, where it didn't previously. This is because ESG has been shown to be financially important. There is growing evidence that ESG fits within the fiduciary duty and may even be a legal requirement. Interestingly, there are ongoing legal battles in a number of countries to make this point and ensure that investors consider ESG as part of their fiduciary duty. We've covered so much in this block of the podcast that we thought it would be great to just boil it down a bit for you. So in terms of what are the key drivers for sustainable finance? To recap, we would say that one, the finance sector acknowledging that climate and sustainability issues are a systemic risk to the sector. Two, investors and shareholders are pushing for sustainability to be integrated in investment decision-making. Three, financial markets showcasing that investing responsibly yields better financial outcomes than investing traditionally. And four, regulations are pushing for making reporting ESG mandatory or through including it in the concept of fiduciary duty. All right, so there are many factors we know contributing to the need for sustainable finance. Briefly, in researching for this episode, I found some interesting examples to demonstrate the momentum that we're seeing in the financial sector today. So for example, the first half of 2020 saw a record 20.9 billion US dollars flow into sustainable funds. That's as almost as much as the entire year of 2019. Another interesting point is that sustainable investing grew 34% in the two years up to 2018, reaching a total of 30.7 trillion, that's a trillion with a T, US dollars, a huge amount. One final interesting note to demonstrate this momentum, more than 2,200 investors with $80 trillion of total assets under management have committed to integrating environmental, social, and governance, these ESG factors we've discussed, into their investment decisions. It's really fantastic. And that sound means it's time for our sustainability scoop. 
Each month, we share a sustainability scoop to better connect the topic of the episode to something happening in the world. And what is a better connection than discussing something that so many of us have, and which we have already introduced at the top of today's episode? Pensions. So New York City recently announced that it was divesting its pension funds from fossil fuels. In January 2021, the city's largest pension funds voted to divest their portfolios of an estimated $4 billion U.S. billion from securities related to fossil fuel industry. And they're not alone. Cities, states, countries, and companies from around the world have announced similar plans to divest their pension funds. But what actually does it mean to divest? Well, divesting is the reduction or sale of assets, in essence, the opposite of investing. Instead of investing pension funds in harmful industries like weapons manufacturers and fossil fuel companies, pension funds are selling these assets and reinvesting in more sustainable assets, which have been shown to have the same, if not better, financial performance, especially in the long run, as our societies continue to see growth in industries contributing to more sustainable futures. And what's great about that is that actually various actors are pressuring these pension funds to divest. For example, Richard Curtis, a film writer and director of various movies you might have heard of, like Bridget Jones' Diary, Mr. Bean, Love Actually, Notting Hill, he just recently launched a powerful campaign called Make My Money Matter. And the campaign is a direct response to the fact that there's three trillion pounds in UK pensions that are mostly being invested in fossil fuels to tobacco exploitation to extraction. Yeah, hearing this, I'm actually reminded of an organization called Fossil Free. It's a campaign to push institutions to divest from fossil fuels. The organization has cataloged more than 1,300 entities around the world divesting from fossil fuels, totaling 14.5 trillion U.S. dollars in divestment. Now, only a portion of this, about 1.8 trillion, represents divestment of pension funds from fossil fuels, but that's still a huge number and important progress to transform the financial sector. And if you'd like to see a list of those entities that have divested or see how you can get involved in the divestment movement, you can visit Fossil Free's website at www.gofossilfree.org. And as always, if you want to receive more information about this month's sustainability scoop, make sure you're subscribed to our newsletter. Each month, we send out a reminder email announcing new episodes, which include show notes, access to research output, and additional information about our monthly sustainability scoop. You can sign up on our website at www.iiee.lu.sc slash podcast. I think this month's sustainability scoop illustrates what organizations can do to be involved in sustainable finance. You know, these pension funds, for example, choosing to divest their funds from fossil fuel companies. But what about individuals? We know that there are a clear link between our personal finances and sustainability, although this is often overlooked at an individual level. You might not think that your money has a role in sustainable finance, but it really does. Let's take the example of your pension. As an individual, you can pressure pension funds to divest generally, for example, as the public New York City pension fund did. Alternatively, you yourself can dive deeper into your pension fund and divest your own pension from harmful industries. Absolutely. You know, Stephen, I, I'm a bit like you here, where I always shied a bit away from my finances. And like I said, my, my goal this year was to um, really re-examine my personal finances, and I decided to look at my pension fund. And yeah, my previous employer had signed me up automatically, and I really never took the time to check what they actually were investing in. And to my horror, I found out that they were investing in fossil fuel, mining, and tobacco industries. And so, yeah, exactly. I'm now communicating with them to see how they can divest my pension fund investment. Hey, Catherine, I have to say that's fantastic. And uh, I applaud that effort. I know it's not an easy thing because I myself have gone through that process of, of contacting the pension fund and requesting my pension to be divested from these harmful industries. I was 
shocked to see that there were funds that were investing in chemical companies, weapons manufacturers, fossil fuel companies, and the like. And uh, it was not an easy process, to be honest. They don't make it easy to go through and understand which companies that your pension may be investing in. But for me, it was really important to have my pension be in line with my values and recognizing also that our society is changing. And that, like we've said previously, investing in sustainable finance does have equal or more financial return in the long run. So one thing that we'll do in our newsletter is send resources to those that maybe want more information about taking similar steps in their own lives to divest their own pensions from these potential harmful industries. And with this context and background on sustainable finance, let's take a deeper look into sustainable finance with our podcast guests. We have the pleasure to welcome Emilia Holdaway to the podcast. Emilia is a senior environmental sustainability and climate change professional with over 20 years experience and specialist knowledge in international climate change policy, climate finance, and sustainable finance. She is currently the policy program director at the Institutional Investors Group on Climate Change, a forum for collaboration on climate change for European investors. There are currently over 270 members, including some of the largest pension funds and asset managers across 16 countries, representing around 35 trillion euros in assets under management. Welcome, Emilia. It's great to have you here. Thank you. Hi, Catherine. Hi, Emilia. So we thought it would be great if you could just start to tell us a bit more about what you do at the uh, IIGCC. Yeah, um, so I lead the policy program at IIGCC, and my focus is on ensuring that the right government policies are in place to unlock and scale up climate investment. Um, so I look at both sustainable finance policy, as well as regulation of the real economy, identifying the log jams, the issues of most importance to investors, and then building consensus among investors uh, putting forward asks to governments um, and making sure that investor voice supporting high climate ambition is heard. I maybe have an easy question for you, uh, something that we've talked about on the podcast already, but how do you define an investor in sustainable finance? This is something I'm having a hard time kind of wrapping my head around. Who is this this investor? Mm, it's a really good question because there's a lot of um, there's a lot a lot of different size and shapes of investors. Um, all of us are investors. You know, we've all got pension funds. Um, we all have got um, a sway over you know how our own pension funds are, are spent. Um, there are sort of a whole range of um, of players in this market: um, insurance companies, asset managers, asset owners, and we're investors too. One of the things that we've talked about on the podcast thus far is the role of regulation in guiding sustainable finance. And we've introduced the EU taxonomy as one such tool. I'm wondering if you can tell us a little bit more about the EU taxonomy and maybe what impact this will have in Europe and beyond. Yeah, um, so the EU taxonomy is a classification system, a list of activities which are considered environmentally sustainable. Uh, there are six categories or objectives against which an activity could be considered environmentally sustainable. So, for example, because it supports reducing greenhouse gas emissions or adapting to climate change or preventing pollution and so on. For an activity to be included in the taxonomy, though, it has to not only meet one of those six environmental objectives, but it also has to be considered to do no significant harm to the other objectives. So these are not just green activities, they're the greenest of the green activities. Um, in terms of impact, um, a list on its own is just a list, um, and its impact is where it gets applied uh, within regulation, within investor decision making. And an example of where the taxonomy is expected to have impact is that it's looking to be applied within the EU's regulatory requirements for corporates to publicly report on their operations and what percentage of their activities align with the EU taxonomy. Um, maybe another example of where the taxonomy could have impact 
um, would be the um, how economic recovery funds are spent. So for example, um, within the EU's economic recovery package, 30% of the 750 billion euros is to be directed towards climate-related activities. That's positive, um, but climate-related activities has been left open as a really broad definition. If that was pinned back to the EU taxonomy, then that would be an example of the, the taxonomy having um, even more impact. Thank you, Amelia. And, and just to clarify, so will the taxonomy only be for Europe or is it planning to go beyond, like to be included in regulations beyond the European scope? Yeah, so um, that's a really interesting question and really topical at the moment. So different jurisdictions are developing their own taxonomies, which reflects the views of what, the, of what those local constituencies would consider a sustainable activity to be. Um, we can expect that EU taxonomy will have influence outside of Europe, um, especially given EU's traditional leadership position on taxonomy. But the idea of sustainability will probably be interpreted differently, you know, country by country, region by region. And there's a, um, a platform where there's some um, coordination, you know, going on between the different countries that are developing taxonomies at the moment. Mm, yeah, super interesting and a little bit uh, mind blowing to me. I think somebody who's new to the world of sustainable finance and, and sustainable investing, you know, I realize that maybe I don't have such a large voice, but recognizing that it's really about the underlying market and uh, a, a larger transition that we need to see more than just like myself raising my hand that I want to invest my pension more sustainably. Um, but I'm, I'm wondering, you know, what are any potential downsides of investing sustainably? Is there something behind it that, that a, a consumer or an investor should be worried about? Yeah, well, I think um, one of the one of the sort of areas that that's being worked through is that it's it's fairly straightforward to differentiate between a deep green activity versus a highly polluting activity. Um, but there's a lot of open ground in between those two ends of the spectrum. There's a lot of um, shades of grain. Um, and as well as increasing the proportion of those deep grain activities that are being financed, there's a role for finance to be supporting transitioning activities from highly polluting to grain. Um, but how do you identify what a transitioning activity is versus a company that is talking the talk, but in practice is buying time to continue with business as usual. Um, a really good example might be an electricity company, which is mostly fossil fuels, but has the objective of transitioning to say 100% renewable energy. If you're a sustainability minded investor, this is what you wanna be hearing. And this sounds like a company of the future um, and something that you would want to direct sustainable finance towards. But over what time frame should the company reasonably be expected to shift to 100% renewables? Um, in one year? In 10 years? By, say, 2030? Um, okay, well, what interim targets would you want to see between now and 2030? What progress would you want to see, you know, next year in terms of capital expenditure spending? And in practice, it probably won't be a straight line uh, between now and 2030. It'll probably look more like a series of step changes. Um, so if that company is taking convincing steps to transition to 100% renewables at an appropriate pace, then this is making a real, a real world difference to emissions. And that would seem like a worthy target for sustainable finance. But at what point do you judge brainwash and give notice that you'll be divesting? It's, um, it's really hard to have a conversation during these times and not ask a question linked to the COVID pandemic, obviously. So, um, yeah, I was just wondering, in your, in your opinion, what has a COVID-19 pandemic exposed about sustainable finance or even about the factors that they look at? You know, we know that sustainable finance looks at ESG, which is something that we covered in this podcast. Is there anything that the pandemic told us that we should also be looking at? Well, from one perspective, um, the pandemic has shown us how vulnerable our economies are to systematic risks. And even while the last economic crisis is within most of our living memories, um, climate change is a slower moving threat compared to the pandemic, but it's just as systematic and serious a risk as the pandemic. And if we consider the pandemic a dress rehearsal for climate change, our financial systems are clearly not prepared. 
Um, on the other hand, um, despite the pandemic, 2020 was also a watershed year in terms of global uh, climate policy ambition. So the election of the Biden administration in the US, uh, China's commitment to net zero emissions, the EU not slowing down, you know, over half of the world's greenhouse gas emissions are now bound with a carbon neutral mid-century pledge. It really feels like 1.52 degrees is within reach. And this is real progress and it's happened even with the additional challenges of the pandemic. So it's not a question of whether all finance needs to become sustainable finance. It's a matter of when, you know, the writing is on the wall. Mm, yeah, certainly. But what do you think then looking forward uh, to that wall? What do you think is on the wall in terms of key trends that we'll see in sustainable finance in the coming year or two? Yeah, so we're going to be seeing more commitments by financial sector players to net zero emissions by 2050 um, or sooner and ambitious interim targets to 2030 and 2040. We're already seeing you know big players making those sorts of announcements. Um, improved disclosure of climate risk by corporates and investors. And I would also say more definition around transitioning and this area of transition finance within sustainable finance. I am so impressed by the wealth of knowledge and so grateful for you joining us on the podcast. What, uh, what resources would you recommend to maybe some of our listeners that are interested in learning more about sustainable finance? Uh, yeah, well, there's, there's a few places that you can go. Um, you know, if you want to get deep into the technical uh, detail, you can definitely go to the website for IIGCC. Um, all of the policy positions that I send out, they all go on the website in terms of transparency, in terms of our advocacy positions. Um, so you can sort of see where, you know, our, you know, we're landing on issues like the EU taxonomy or, um, you know, upcoming EU, UK sustainable finance regulation. Um, there's there's so many places to go out there. I probably um, would, it'd be a very long list, but that could be, you know, one place to start. Um, even the European Commission's sustainable finance, you know, website is quite good in terms of all the different EU initiatives. Um, EU is certainly, you know, leading the way at the moment, but others are catching up fast. Thank you, Emilia, so much for joining us today. And like Stephen said, the wealth of knowledge has really been really been amazing and very much in line with everything that we've been talking about on the podcast today. So thank you so much for joining us. Uh, I'm really glad. Thank you so much for having me, Catherine and Stephen. In this part of the episode, we're speaking with a IIIE alum. The Institute has two master's programs that focus on environmental management and policy. And our next guest is a recent graduate. Happy to introduce Mike Tolch to the podcast. He's a senior analyst in the shareholder engagement and policy team at the Shareholder Association for Research and Education, the acronym SHARE, and it's based in Toronto, Canada. Mike, welcome to the podcast. Thanks very much for having me. Well, before we dive into some of these uh, more content-specific questions, thought we'd ask you to share a little bit about what you do and how it links to the topic of today's episode, sustainable finance. Sure. Um, well, as you uh, as you mentioned, I am an engagement and policy analyst, uh, and I guess the simplest way to explain it is that uh, my organization share. Uh, provides a number of services to large or institutional investors. So um, pension funds or university endowment funds, for example, um, which allows them to manage their investment portfolios uh, more sustainably. Uh, and there are a number of strategies and tools to do that. Um, but my work in particular, corporate engagement, uh, falls within the concept of what I'll say is active ownership which is basically that large investors and to some degree, you know, small investor, investors like individuals, um, by owning shares in a company have certain rights that they can exercise uh, to influence the governance and management of the company. So uh, rather than just hold, company, uh, hold stock in a company and sit on the sidelines, uh, many shareholders have opted to engage in sort of an ongoing uh, or one-off dialogues with companies on key environmental or social issues. And 
that's uh, the work that I uh, help them with. And when you say that these shareholders have some kind of engagement with the corporations or potentially want to exercise some kind of, of influence, um, are you looking at all here at ESG factors or do you look at their non-financial disclosures? Yeah, how do you use ESG and non-financial disclosures in your work? Yeah, so uh, in the concept of ESG uh, is, I mean, quite broad, but is also what drives a lot of the work that is that happens in engagement, in you know, portfolio screening, in sort of impact investing. As I mentioned, there are a lot of different tools, but from an engagement perspective, there are, well, I, I can say on my team at SHARE, there are uh, analysts who focus uh, specifically on climate environmental issues, uh, which is where I'm focused on. Uh, but we also have analysts who uh, help companies or help investors engage with companies on uh, social issues like uh, decent work and human rights. And sort of as an all-encompassing engagement item, there is the governance side, which is, uh, you know, it's a large part of the shareholders relationship with a company happens with within the way that they, their corporate governance structures effectively uh, guide and steer the company. So, you know, as a as a broad concept, as a broad umbrella, ESG would you know be the overarching way that we engage and and structure our engagements uh, with the companies. What What do you mean by engage, Mike? You've said this term a few times, and I'm just trying to understand what specifically do you do to engage um, the the actors that you're working with. Yeah, I, uh, that's a that's that's probably a term that needs clarification. Um, well, I think first it's probably important to provide maybe the counter. You know, there's there's a counter narrative which is not engaging with companies, but um, you know, I guess the best way to explain engagement is to say, uh, you know, there are a lot of companies that maybe do not perform exceedingly well uh, when it comes to managing their environmental impacts or their uh, the social good that they produce uh, for uh, stakeholders and communities and, and, and workers. And so um, if a institutional investor owns shares in a company that has maybe fallen by the wayside or could be performing better on these issues, you know, there are, there are a lot of options uh, at a investor's disposal. Um, I mean, they can sell their shares in the company, uh, and that is, I mean, broadly known as divestment. And that's something that is uh, extremely, you know, you can't really talk about engagement without talking about divestment, I think, because it really is, uh, you know, it, it's an integral part of, uh, of active ownership is to what extent can we influence, uh, you know, or affect change at companies. A starting point would definitely be to sort of reach out to a company and say, uh, you know, we'd like to discuss this issue with you. It doesn't always need to be necessarily about a negative event, but in some cases that can be a jumping point for an engagement. And, you know, we'd like to have a discussion with you about these issues. This is the way that we believe your management of, let's say, your GHG emissions should be handled. And you know, it's sort of a, uh, it's a combination of a progressive dialogue with the company, uh, but that can sort of escalate into actions like a shareholder proposal filed at a company's annual general meeting, uh, or a, you know, public campaign sort of, you know, discussing the negative impacts that a company is having on, uh, you know, on the environment or uh, on their workers, for example. So, you know, I think engagement can take many forms. There can be a, you know, it can be aggressive. It can be sort of a ongoing dialogue, but generally it involves in making sure that as much as you can influence a company on certain points, you are doing so. Um, how would you say that reporting standards influence this kind of engagement? If you know, we know that most of these voluntary reporting standards are for companies to disclose this information, does the amount of information do they, that they disclose has an impact on the way you engage with them? The short answer to that is uh, 100%. It has a significant impact because, you know, as we're sort of in a, uh, I'll say a corporate world where non-financial disclosures like climate emissions, uh, 
GHG emissions, um, you know, decent work, uh, gender equality has not been sort of adopted as uh, mandatory standards across the board. A lot of the information that we are dependent on to get an idea of how companies are performing uh, comes from voluntary uh, self-disclosures. And so the benefit of uh, standards like GRI or in North America, there's uh, SASB, is that it does provide transparency to the methodology as well as to the information that comes out. And so for, from an engagement perspective, uh, it is a huge driver in how we uh, you know, conduct our, our program and, and uh, you know, develop our strategy. Uh, because we really do rely on information that has been systematically uh, gathered and collected in a way that we can understand whether it actually represents what is happening. Uh, maybe just changing gears a little bit, Mike, because you're an alumni of the IIEE, I thought it'd be interesting to ask you a little bit more about how you came to be in the position you're working in now, especially with the academic background you have. Uh, why did you choose to, to work in, in this area in sustainable finance? Um, well, for me, the uh, probably the pivotal experience uh, would have been my uh, research and work while I was at the IIIEE. My uh, thesis was on sustainable finance, uh, and before that, I actually had a chance to work in sustainable finance as part of my SED project. And you know, the more I this looked is, in. Uh... This is a project that we have that is part of the, the master's program here where, you, where students actually go out into the real world and consult with a real world client. It's a really cool project we have as part of the, the master's program. Right. <laughs> you were saying you, ha you had a particular project and uh, experience uh, in this course. Yeah, and, and I had had sort of a, I would say, a tangential background in finance. I, I did study it as part of my undergrad, but I ended up going into law and practiced for a couple of years before. Uh, switching gears towards environmental uh, management and policy. Um, but what I found the more I, I dug into sustainable finance in particular was, uh, you know, a lot of what early ESG started to look like for me was the fact, you know, was sort of efforts to take CSR or corporate uh, social responsibility, you know, what had worked there and kind of slap a new label on it and package it as ESG rather than sort of you know, work to develop sustainable finance as a standalone field. You know, my work was in, my research at Lund was in, uh, you know, eco-labels for sustainable investment products. And I, I became sort of alive to the fact that a lot of the approaches that, you know, might work for a product in the real economy just did not translate well when talking about something as sort of abstract and ephemeral as a sustainable investment. And so, you know, that was an approach that I did not agree with. And, you know, I sort of realized that ESG as, as it was not a novel concept necessarily, but there was, a, there is a lot of work to be done in, in actually aligning what ESG means with the challenges that it's intended to address. And also that there was an opportunity to take a bit of a contrarian position to traditional market, you know, market logic. And as a uh, contrarian myself, that was a great opportunity. Maybe for others that are interested in also following a career in sustainable finance, what recommendations would you give somebody? Well, I think the, the primary uh, recommendation that I would give is, is, I mean, it's important to not treat sustainable finance or ESG as a monolith. There are so many different ways that uh, finance and the investment world interact and overlap with the real economy. And there are so many different streams of sustainable investing, and they mean very different things and have very different real world implications that, you know, I would say don't pursue something just because it is considered an ESG you know, investment in you know, sustainable finance in the ESG investing space. I think it's really important to understand where you can best you know, help and where you can you know, best make an impact and also what you're most interested in when it comes to finance. I think that's a great place to leave us, Mike. Uh, thanks so much for joining today's episode. Uh, great to have you on. It's been a pleasure. Thanks for having me.
We covered a lot in today's episode, and we really hope that you found it interesting and helpful because to us, we really think that this is a topic that many of us potentially don't fully understand and is really important in helping us transition. And so in this episode, we heard about how sustainable finance as a field of work can bring forward important and meaningful sustainable solutions by redirecting our economy and ensuring that investments are made with environmental and social considerations. We also heard about how we can apply that in our professional paths. I also think it's important to understand how we can integrate sustainability into our own personal financial decisions. When we usually think about our own impact on the climate, we think about transport, or we think about energy efficiency in our households, or we think about the food that we eat. But we hope this episode sheds light on the fact that we should also be thinking about how our money can have an impact too, either through the way that we invest it or how our personal pensions are being invested. Absolutely. And, and the great thing is that millennials are starting to realize that, as we mentioned that before. And according to an EY study, millennials more consistently select investments that align with their values than previous generations. Another study by Morgan Stanley showed that 84% of millennials cite investing with a focus on ESG impact as central goal to their investment decisions. So to our listeners, we just wanted to slightly suggest to join these millennials in this movement and to think about investing sustainably considering ESG or in requesting your pension funds to be divested. What great interviews we had on the podcast today, too, and insights from our podcast guests. I'm so grateful that they were able to join us today and uh, maybe gave you some more insights into the field and as a potential uh, career path as well. Once again, we want to thank Emilia Holdaway and Mike Tulch for joining us on today's podcast. And also a special thanks to our production assistant, Franz Liberston. And of course, thank you for joining us on another episode of Advancing Sustainable Solutions. We have a new episode coming out in March. Until next time, bye-bye. Bye. -bye. bye.